0: Um, okay, so the highlight of the presentation today, I, what, what does it mean to purpose to destroy cultural property and what has, has ISIS done in Iraq and Syria? Um, the second point is what are the possible explanations for what's happening? Why all of a sudden these particular uh, sites and buildings and items became a target of terrorism? Um, what has been the international response to the crisis? What has the international community done both in terms of um, legal changes and um, policy changes? And then the last point is of what are the options to rebuild and preserve these uh, sites from present danger and future attacks? Um, the, before I go any further, there's a, a, we need to understand why, what is it about cultural property that is important, and why there's a special a legal um, section for cultural property. They're they're not just any um, civilian property. They they actually are uh, have are, are especially especially protected by the. Uh, legal framework. Well, first of all, it's the knowledge that we get from uh, research on historical sites, especially the sites from uh, you see Iraq and Syria. They they date back thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, the first writing, human writing, is um, comes from this region. Um, the second, naturally. Is the aesthetics of going to museums, looking at beautiful faces, beautiful sculptures. Um, um, the third that I find it to be extremely important um, is group identity. When, when especially when we um, we talk about nations and um, commonalities between members of a nation, you always understand that the, the people in a nation never really met each other. Well, most people have not met each other. Most um, Canadians, most Americans have not met each other. But in a, in a, in a very real sense, we all believe to be part of a nation. We all Americans, we all Canadians. And we feel that special attachment to each other because we belong to this group. And what does what does it mean to belong to a group? Um, it means that we have a common symbol, a common uh, flag, common hymns, um, all these like, symbols, uh, whether they are tangible or intangible. Make a, is part of that creation of group identity. And when I discuss um, the the reason why cultural property is so important in, in group identity, we also have to understand that. Identity does it, no no one's identity has some from the sky. All identities are created uh based on on history, based on symbols, based on uh, sites that build upon what makes us us. Um, so it is part of that um, discussion. Um. Over thousands of years, after hundreds of years, that built on a group identity. So, whenever you have sites, you have buildings, you have paintings, sculptures that, um, reminisce with what history, what the history of that group is, though, that particular cultural property has a significant meaning, has a, a, a highly significant meaning. Um, and naturally, the last, uh, also, mostly, a very important is, um, Characteristic of cultural property is that it builds on national pride. Um, You know, sites that generations and generations, um, you know, take pride and uh, seek to preserve. That is part of what makes cultural property such an important um, uh, issue and why nations um, have significant resources dedicated to that protection. Um, So, in Iraq and Syria uh, during 2014 and to, to, to the extent of 2017, less so now, um, is the actual purpose destruction of cultural property. Um, ISIS on its creed uh outlined uh, why um, how it would, this organization would create a plan and um, what were its goals. So the first one was the um, destruction of all manifestations of ideology. Uh, basically, no statue would be standing. Anything that would resemble a, 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 some kind of human face or something would have to be destroyed. Graves um, would be destroyed because that's something that supposedly their ideology does not um, accept. Uh, the second one that they literally wrote down in their creed uh, and path was that they would destroy any form of um, secularism, that is, uh, nationalism, patriotism, the love for the country, the love for the nation, uh, political. Uh, and Discussions, elections, anything that um, would be mildly against what they believe to be the true path of God, that would be that would have to be destroyed. Um, and finally, any devices that would uh, transmit figures or what have you would also have to be destroyed. Which, as I speak, I am sure everybody in the room understands that um, this is. Against everything that um, that the region has has stood for, there has been caliphs over and over and over for hundreds of years, and the the statues and the, um, the historical sites that they have attacked have co- coexisted with the caliphs. Um, the second one is that they have used the devices. They have used TV. They have used sound. They have used uh, symbols to uh, transmit their message. So it's hypocritical to other than to decide that we cannot use devices, but yet again, uh, do it. Um, so the, once, once they set out that um, yeah, the reason why they would have to destroy all symbols and all uh, size, historical sites, all, all graves, all anything that resembles human uh, faces. Um they went on a um, on a complete uh, rampage of destruction. Uh both uh, the religious symbols of churches, mosques, um Sunni, Shia, any uh, literally, literally no one was safe. Um, and in addition to that, secular things like the Ark of Triumph and the um, a uh, there in Palmyra, and I have a few pictures. I'm sure you have seen them um, yourself in in the news. But they're such striking, beautiful sites that it's mind blowing that they have they have, are secular in in every sense of the word, they're secular, Um, especially like the Palmyra size, most of them at least. Um, And they were still destroyed. And uh, the reason why, for example, if you remember, after uh, the Russians and the uh, Iraqi, uh, uh, the Syrian troops took over Palmyra in uh, 2016, spring 2016, um, they used this particular amphitheater uh, to give them a concert. Then um, there was a very beautiful concert where the Marinsky uh, uh, musicians had flown in to give that particular concert. As soon as the Russians were gone, they, was, ISIS overtook Pamir again, and uh, the facade of the amphitheater um, was destroyed. Um, obviously, as a political statement. This is the temple of Belshomim. This was a uh, funerary tomb where, it's interesting if you, you know, I'm not a historian myself, but um, all of these uh, uh, buildings, some of these buildings in uh, Palmyra, they're actually uh, wealthy families that built tombs, and a lot of the the statues that you see there are actually resemblance of the people that died, and in their tomb they would put a statue that looked. Like the person, so basically they're very elaborate. They're very, um, you know, uh, aesthetically pleasing. They and they, they obviously um, not only aesthetically, but historically, we learn a lot from from studying these sites. Um, this is the um, Temple of Baal. Baal is like the god of gods, I believe, in in uh, the ancient world. Um, and this is the Ark of Trujillo. Also was um, destroyed. If you if you do a research paper on your own, you'll see that a lot of the destructions have a correlation with either losing a battle, making a statement. Um, for example, the, in the um the in Fourth of July 2015, there was um, an execution. They released a video on Fourth of July, uh, children executing uh, prisoners. So, like, a lot of these uh, destructions that they, you know, identified as being religious or, you know, having a religious connotation of why they're destroying are actually simply political. They are done in, in a very calculated manner on, on a particular day, for a partic- with more more particular audience. Um, again here, uh, this is Nimrud, one of the most beautiful sites, and most, uh, in the city of Nimrud uh, built Thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, This is the Lama Sao, the protector of the king. Um, These were also destroyed. As you can see um, here, the guy has destroyed something that has no human resemblance, just a flower. Um, And I have more, so these were put online. Before they even destroyed them, they put them online, advertised the destruction. And explaining, you know, explaining why they have to be destroyed. One guy, basically, in this video, I'm sure you have seen it. It was a, a video both of the destruction of the museum <clears> of <throat> and um, the destruction of Hatra. Like, there were two videos that showed up back to back. Um, and the reason, the the, the person showed, goes on camera and says in Arabic um, that even though these particular um, um, sculptures or items, or the artifacts, antiquities are worth millions of dollars, uh, we will destroy them because, um, you know, that's, that's what we're here to do. Um, well, and what they did not say is that they actually earned millions of dollars out of these, um, the stealing, not only destroying these uh, particular antiquities, but also stealing them and selling them in the black market. Um, and the other thing that I forgot to mention is that a lot of the um, items that were in the Nimruz video, they were fake, so it's all like, I, they knew they were fake, but they didn't, they basically were just show, like, this is how we can control your heritage, destroy your heritage, uh, pass against um, them. So, um, and in, in, in the study of terrorism, we, we have this um, discussion between what does it mean to, uh, what is terrorism versus war on terror? Terrorism is more a psychological effect on the witness. If Even if you destroy something that's In Syria, your target audience is not only Syrians breaking down the Syrians, breaking down the spirit, you know, whoever's hiding them, but also showing people far, far away that we are in control, we can do what we want. And the media obviously plays a very vital part in transmitting that message. So, in destroying these particular attacks, it's also an advertisement for their cause, It's it's a recruiting tool for their sympathizers. And it's a it's a platform to basically read political grievances. Um, so it they were very savvy in doing that. I have to admit. Um, the the other part that became very significant in um, to, uh, obviously the, the stealing of antiquities has been long um, an issue has been and continues to get issue Around the world, this is not necessarily new, but what was new about this, uh, the theft of in Syria and Iraq is that ISIS actually organized, they created a department of precious resources. Called the I don't speak the language, but basically it was a particular department within their so-called government that would um, tax and extort and um, manage the, the excavation of new sites and new, uh, new antiquities. And the reason why it's important to understand that, why couldn't they just go and uh, steal from a museum and then sell them, which they did, But in the black market, that would be very difficult to clean that particular stone antiquity that has been registered with uh, the museum, has been registered with international um, sites. So that's why having newly discovered uh, antiquities on the ground, actually they're the the best time because nobody knows that they exist, and then you can sell them in the market saying, oh, well, this has been in my family for many, many years. And therefore, it's not stolen, and it's you know, I like, um, the legitimate owner of this particular artifact. So, in 2015, the U.S. Uh, forces uh, raided the, uh, the compound of Abu uh, Sayed and he was the uh, head of the department when they when they went to his. Uh, Place. They now they they found antiquities. They found um, pictures on his WhatsApp and pictures of uh, items that were arranged for sale. They found receipts of almost two hundred sixty-five thousand dollars for for a very small period of time, from December to March. Um, So, which means if, if you're an economist, they basically make millions, and there is evidence that they make millions within a very short period of time out of taxation and sales. They also control. Who could excavate? Um, how much? It, where that would be? They they had um, licenses for that particular uh, excavation. Now, as much as the 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 big issue right now that nobody really knows the answer is how much did they profit? Um, the U.S. has evidence that at least a million dollars. Um, the Russians estimate that is about 150 to 2 million dollars, um, but they do not cite. Uh, how they got the number. Um, the Iraqis themselves have, have thrown around uh, the, uh, a figure of a hundred thousand um, million dollars per year, so it's really difficult to know exactly how much they make. But the, so that's why I say it's an immediate, security concern because all that money goes to fund terrorist activities. And if you think, well, if the, if some people say like, oh, but if it's not too much, it's just a million dollars versus, oh, it's a hundred million dollars. Um, you know where the number is th- doesn't matter or not and I say it doesn't matter because even though the attack in France um, was ten thousand um, dollars and killed hundred million people it, everything cost about hundred ten thousand dollars from from the terrorist movement from Syria coming to Paris renting buying what they have to buy so uh, terrorist attacks are very cheap to 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 um execute. So any money at all coming from stolen antiquities is is very beneficial to them. Um, so the long term security concerns are a little more um if you will, you have to understand that um I come from the school of constructivism. And in constructivism you, you basically the the, the main framework is that nothing is given. It's all a construction. Our identities are constructions. construction. Nations are constructions. construction. It's a social construction of, of that takes many, many years to create, but once it's created, they're very they're very real, they're very strong. So when, you, when the, the terrorists attack the nation's fabric, the nation's culture, the nation's art, the nation's religions, then all these religions, assuming the, the Shias, the, the uh, uh, Catholics, there's different forms of religion. But in, the, in, the, in some ways, they actually coexisted to a, 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 good, a good degree. Um, if they weren't necessarily, you know, fighting, um so it's they are specifically targeting um, those symbols that create unity within religions. The tongue, um, of Noah, of the whale. Um, um, the uh, Tomb of Jonas. Um, they, it was very important to both the Iraq, uh, to, to both the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews. Uh, so basically, those particular um, symbols, where everyone cherished and everyone finds common grounds, were specifically targeted to create division among different religions and among different uh, sections of society. Um, so, the, the reason why uh, destruction of cultural is property is a long-term security concern is because it destroys the fabric of society. It destroys that, that unity, that, that feeling of togetherness, of what makes us a nation, because what makes us a nation is not a given uh, block from, from, from up above. It is something that is created within uh, you know, a time, space, and identity, if you So these particular artifacts, history, helps To build the the identity of a nation that we are as a people, inclusiveness, understanding, empathy, dialogue, all those great um, human values that we we need to nurture instead of what ISIS has done, destroy them. So and the other a very important thing that you probably would learn in, in IR class is that looking back at a past history, a shared, a shared legacy, um helps to bring people who are obviously divided, they have been divided for many years now. That there, there is real division within society. So cultural property um helps build Dialogue and bridges. Obviously, you need you know you need to, to put it in a in a very um, elaborate platform. Uh, but if you if you look at the UNESCO um, um, saying, it says that peace is built in the minds of people, and that it's true. The peace is built in the mind, like the, the understanding of each other is built in the mind, not not um, outside. Um, and uh, again, this idea that cultural heritage helps. Create uh, dialogue between people um, was um, reiterated in the UN General Assembly resolution Saving cultural heritage in Iraq. There's a, a, a lot of them have the same idea behind that culture the cultural property uh, uh, helps. Um, Pluralism helps freedom of religion achieve uh, peace, ability, reconciliation, and social cohesion. So, all of them, all of these particular uh, resolutions have this particular. This caveat that we need to protect cultural property because of what it represents, because it helps build bridges, because we can use it to bring people together, and, and um, what's it very important about cultural property more so than what you can learn in a book or um, you know in, in, like so we you, which uh, they're also important. But for example, visualizing uh, there was there were studies done early in the 19th century in the United States about when the Smithsonian was, was you know. Created and built and improved, uh, uh, and so they basically said that the reason why we need to put so much effort into making these beautiful museums is that it, it helps people visualize what we're trying to convey. It's a it's an easier form of, of um, you know learning, especially for young children. Like oh, this is your past, this is your heritage, this is how you know your ancestors built, thought, um, created. Um, and uh, the other thing is, uh, I'm a little bit confusing here, uh, but um, uh, what ISIS has done is literally destroyed the nationalist agenda, destroying nations and state. It was very specifically done to destroy that that uh, the fabric that keeps that society together. Um, so, and, and another thing is that if you look at um, other um, humanists, you'd understand that a lot of but uh, when you go to destroy a particular group of people, uh, to destroy them, who they are, go after their, their memory, their books, their, their culture, their history. And that is how you, if you look at a genocide, when, when there is genocide, you also will see that in addition to a physical destruction of the people, you will see hand in hand, there always is a destruction of their, of their culture. Like uh, the, the Nazis did it, the Khmer rouge did it, and, uh, it, it, like, it when the uh, Europeans did it. So basically, a lot of these um, uh, ethnic conflicts, mm-hmm. not, there will be not only destruction of, of the world physically, but also destruction of their, of their heritage mm-hmm. and history. Um, So, thought, um, so a little bit about the legal framework of, of protecting um, cultural property. There is four main, um, conventions of treaty law that, uh, framed uh, the, the protection of cultural property, as we know it right, uh, right now, uh, in this context, um, there's more. Obviously, there's you know, protection of underwater um, resources, but these are these are more specific to the case of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Uh, the 1955 Convention that seeks to protect cultural property in times of war um, and international conflict, uh, but also in extensive of peacetime. And the, 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 a lot of times, this, this convention has been uh, characterized as an, as an international protection, like basically protecting, um, uh, protecting the, um, protecting the cultural property for the nation and for the for the for for the world. However, the 1970 convention was. Um, was uh, against the illegal trade during the, the peacetime, and this has been characterized more of a international uh, um, protection, internationalism protection of, of the uh, <coughs> cultural parties. So uh, then there is 1972 convention. This created the uh, World Heritage Committee and the World um, Heritage List. So basically some of the most uh, beautiful, most important uh, sites in the world are protected by this particular convention. Uh, this, that means when uh, in the significance of it is that they get uh, not only resources, but if they get attacked during war, um, th- the penalty is even higher. Um, and then there's the 1995 convention, the early droids. Um This was, <coughs> this particular convention doesn't have that many um, uh, members, but because these principles are very strict on what can be uh, retained and what can be sold, it's it's important to understand what this how this works. Uh, for me. Um, Sponsor of this convention was Italy, um, because it, at the time uh, Italy was trying really hard to get back its its own property from around the world. And the funny thing is that because the Italians were trying so hard to get their property back, they had to give back the other land that had they had taken 64 years ago. Anyhow, so look, the caveat on what that is. Um, I'm sure you have other classes where you have learned all about. Um, you know, war crimes and crimes against humanity, but because they are so particularly really, um, specific in, this, in, in uh, ISIS cases, uh, and what they have done to cultural property, I just want to highlight a few, a few elements of what it means to, uh, you know, when you have a war crime in, in this context. So in order to have a war crime against cultural property, um, you'd have to have a time of things, there has to be an armed conflict, there, there's gotta be a nexus, like the destruction of cultural property has to have a nexus to the actual conflict and knowledge of, the actual knowledge of doing that. Um, the objective has to be a historical, artistic item. Um, sometimes also can, it can be, um, Civilian property, but in this context, its heightened um, importance when it ended the historical item. Um, the The appropriation was not justified by um, the appropriation or the destruction. The act was not justified by military necessity. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about military necessity because a lot of times, um, even even when you have war, crimes or crimes against humanity, and the and a particular historical site was destroyed, um, they the, the only caveat it would be that if it, it can be destroyed if there is a military necessity, and. Um, Military necessity doctrine uh, basically says that uh, something can be destroyed if, by their nature, location, purpose, uh, the, the actual destruction makes a um, the, the definite military. creates a definite military advantage. So basically, you can destroy something. You can destroy its own site, as long as um, that destruction um, creates a military advantage. So basically, the there is a legal standard of when something can be destroyed, but um, there is also limits to how that when how that can be done. Um, okay. So another thing that I want to talk about, and I'm almost done, so I'm, I'm sure I'm running out of my time. You you have to tell me like the numbers and how much time I have. Um, You're good for another another five ten minutes. Okay, enough, um, because these I'm sure will be covered in your classes but um, a lot of times the destruction of portion property in Iraq and Syria was uh, characterized as a as a form of genocide and as I said genocide has again again in international law, been characterized as actual um, biological destruction of a of a group however in Christian the um, the trial chamber in decided that um, when uh, the physical and biological destruction are often simultaneous um, attacks to, to property, so when they happen together, the destruction of property can serve as evidence that there is a uh, triplicidal intent. So it's really important to, when you know, it's in the news, when all these data is being collected of what's happening in Iraq and Syria, that you know, when they go after particular groups of people, they also are going after their uh, cultural property. And the two of them can serve as intent of, of actual genocide. Even though the culture, culture genocide is not recognized in international law. Um, And the last one that I'm um, very passionate about, uh, and I'm glad that a lot of the NGOs, a lot of locals have built evidence, and uh, and ISIS itself has left evidence of of this particular intent. So when you have uh, crimes against humanity, in addition to the elements of a a war crime, um, you would also need to have a particular intent to discriminate based on on, uh, politics, uh, religion, or or race. So there is a particular element of of when, for example, ISIS went after a particular group of people because of their religion, that would be a crime against humanity. So it doesn't have to be just one destruction, but if that particular destruction, destruction has a pattern, and it's because of the people's religion, that would be a crime against humanity. So that's, I argue that a lot of these Uh, crimes are not war crimes, they're crimes against humanity, because they have done in a mass scale, and specifically to destroy groups of people and their religion and their identity. Um, So, uh, lastly, the uh, Mali case was one of the highlights of what has happened recently in international criminal law. Um, This particular person uh, operated in Mali, in Timbuktu, and he was a uh, Knowledgeable uh, person, uh, educated person, and uh, uh, he he was tasked when the militants took over. He was tasked with uh, improving the morality of, of the uh, Timbuktu people, and they destroyed miscellaneous. Timbuktu is also known as the city of 333 saints, so it was very important for the for the community to have for, to preserve those miscellaneous who were also were UNESCO um, uh, heritage sites. So he he destroyed them and they also were um, caught on like they they themselves doing it. Um, so when um, he he pleaded he pleaded guilty, it was actually a very easy case. He only had one charge and that was intentional distraction, uh, directing attacks against buildings dedicated to dedicate the religion and um, historical monuments. So This was the first case where uh, 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 the act itself of destroying cultural property, without other aggravating circumstances such as murder, rape, or you know anything that usually in the kind of cases that go to the ICC, this was the only one that only dealt with destruction of cultural property. Um, And lastly, um, so this was the. Um, legal change uh, that has happened. The, the most significant legal change that has happened for that cultural property. That the, the act of destroying cultural property by itself, without aggravating uh, circumstances, will make will make that of uh war behind. Um So now, what has happened in in uh, Iraq and Syria is. Well, very complicated obviously, but um, the the whole creation of the Syrian identity, the Iraqi identity during, their, during the Assad regime and during the um, Hus- uh, Hussein regime is that these dictators appropriated the national cultural property to, to basically make us uh, the ultimate protectors of that of the problem. <coughs> It resolved like, the liberation, or whatever, the liberation take over of, uh, um, um, wait, in Syria, I can't remember the name of the city for the moment, but basically uh, when the Syrians took over, uh, the Syrian forces took over the city, they had the Assad's face all over the, the buildings, basically uh, portraying him as the protector of cultural property. When um, Saddam Hussein was he, he, over, he tried to build the Babylonian, which was, was such an interesting experiment because nobody knows what Babylonian looks like, but some, some Saddam Hussein somehow knew. And so every group that they had, they would put his initials, basically trying to connect the current dictator with the like, grand leaders of the past. So like, what I'm trying to say is that a lot of uh, cultural appropriation has happened in this. Um, dictatorships where the dictators, uh ownership of, of the past and becomes the protector of the past, if you will, which what happens is it's dangerous because what happens when people reject the dictator somehow in, in a way or another, it doesn't happen often thankfully, but sometimes you do have, you see, especially in these particular situations where the rejection of the of the dictator becomes also a rejection of whatever they try to protect, <laughs> um, you know, put in their platform, uh, on their agenda. Um, uh, other issues, outstanding issues, that the antiquities uh, black market had existed before to you uh, uh, war, and it's... It's a multi-billion dollar, uh, problem that will not go away, but this exacerbated like, the problem today because all of these, uh, um, heavy exacerbations that happened and, uh, that they that happen, all of them will eventually be trickled into the leak market. And that's um, a big, uh, issue right now is like how to deal with, um, items that have been sold or have at some point been passed, has, have passed through this, uh, um, uh, hands. Um, other issues, and I'm uh, I'm very happy to answer questions. When uh, this, this is my last slide, I'm very happy to answer questions about this. But what um, some ideas have been to whether or not we should even repatriate these uh, these stolen items, creation of state havens. France uh, has has been very proactive in trying to create a safe haven in, in the Louvre, in the north, in, in, a, in a branch of the Louvre in the north. Um, and obviously there is a question of where do you create the safe haven? Should it be in the country itself, or in a neighboring country, or do you take them to Switzerland, or France, or somewhere in the west? Um, the I think, is on tour, like sending these particular antiquities uh, outside, while the conflict is happening, a reconstruction, um, has is a huge issue. What do you do with sites that have been destroyed, like Palmyra? Do you rebuild the site, or do you make it like a Vegas, or just what's left? Um, and obviously, um, awareness campaigns as the, they are always like the, the catch-all phrase that when everything else fails, like it, it's always very important. And sometimes used to raise awareness and be make aware of, of how they can help and what's important and keep an eye out for for uh, especially when these uh, individuals are being sold in the black market for people in the chain of, of trade to keep an eye out and um, you know alert uh, authorities. Okay. So. Yeah.
1: So thank you, Dr. Turku, for your research, for sharing with us your research and your expertise. Uh, Right now, what we're going to do is uh, turn the floor over to Professor Sipuo, who will facilitate the discussion. Um, But first, uh, we'll have a brief reflection from um, him and then... Um, We'll be taking questions from the audience. Um, Questions can be asked in both English and French. Um, And if you can just kindly raise your hand and then Professor Sipogo will uh, mediate the discussion. We also have some questions prepared from the IG team that could also be used as well, but the the questions from the room um, will be priority. So,
2: yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to say in advance that I will have to leave. Ten minutes in in advance of the end of the uh, of the discussion, unfortunately, because I have a class at two and thirty-five. So, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Olga. Good afternoon to you all. Uh, I will offer a few comments about your paper and your presentation before opening the floor to uh, to to the audience here and on the internet. Uh, Your contribution is very timely, and uh, as it is written. in a particular situation where we are witnessing pretty much live uh, on social media and other mass communication and unprecedented uh, attempt on cultural property and uh, it is refreshing uh, contribution to the debate about how and why uh, we should care for the protection of cultural property you offer a well uh, thought out analysis of uh, not only uh, the legal framework uh, relating to the protection of cultural property, but also the consequences, uh, the entire international community face uh, uh, of not taking really decisive action on, on this. Uh, uh, basically, if uh, I got you correctly, argue that concern for the protection of cultural uh-huh. property should be put on the short and long-term uh, agenda for peace and security for two reasons. Uh, first, uh, history and culture as elements of identity can help uh, achieve national reconciliation after a conflict conflict. Uh, distru- and secondly, destruction of or misappropriation of cultural property are uh, not just loss for a particular people, nation, or region, or even for the entire humanity. Uh, you claim it is also a cause of conflict uh, escalation and uprooting of uh, populations. Uh, Your paper also provides useful context and and background uh, to understand the two patterns of of, uh, commission of crimes against cultural property in times of war. Uh, Destruction is uh, one of them, destruction as consequence of collateral damages uh, in warfare and misappropriation by theft, uh, looting or trafficking. Uh, You are right in highlighting uh, that these patterns are not a non-phenomenon in war. Uh, What you rather see as new uh, pathologies uh, in ISIS conduct toward cultural properties is that they they have committed their crimes with intent, um, with with extremism. uh, as evidence of this extremism, you affirm that destruction were not just collateral effect of, of, of war, but uh, well thought out performance as uh, the destruction were carried out and were accompanied uh, by image production to transmit to the entire world the um, uh, yeah, hate. Uh, I cannot be more in agreement with you on that. The, the technological era in which we live uh, has made it possible to have a Facebook live stream. Uh, as well as YouTube broadcasts uh, of war atrocities. These are means that were uh, certainly not available in, in the 20th century armed conflict. Uh, as you have mentioned, the intentional uh, targeting of cultural property to dominate, to uh, break and possibly raise uh, the orders has, of course, reached an unprecedented magnitude in, in recent armed conflict, but they, they were present in, in, in in conflict in the 20th century as well. The Nazi, you mentioned the Nazi uh, spoiling uh, cultural properties. Also in the former Yugoslavia armed conflict as well as in, in Mali uh, with, with Timbuktu. Uh, in fact, it is a common pattern of, of wars uh, um, in, in which cultural, ethnic, uh, racial, and religious elements are present that cultural property will Uh, be destroyed with the intent to humiliate, to dehumanize. Uh, And why can it be so, and uh, why is it so? Because as you have rightly explained uh, in your presentation, attacks on on cultural property uh, are attacks on people, identities, nations, uh, and states. Uh, You name uh, the intrinsic value of of cultural property and say it is one of the most important reasons why the international community Uh, take this seriously. Uh, This is absolutely true in as much as identity relates to who we are uh, as opposed to who the others are. Identity refers to belonging, sharing uh, a common heritage. Um, Cultural property also has a broader social function. Uh, One of these uh, is education. Uh, We can add science, uh, research, or economy because of visiting uh, mu- uh, museum tourism uh, across the world. Uh, what I will insist here on education, education is for me a compliment uh, well identity because uh, the identity uh, as common heri- heritage and memories have to be transmitted to the present generation uh, uh, and to the generations uh, to come. Uh, it is the education of us uh, to perpetuate that identity uh, we share, but also the education of the others about we, about we, uh, who we are, uh, and also for them, to, for the others, to take knowledge uh, and, and respect our identity. Uh, you have well tackled these issues uh, of identity by referring to cultural property as, you know, means of building uh, bridges uh, amongst people. What is, um, however, not satisfactory, uh, you know, um, what is not satisfactory for me in the current state of international law is about the definition of what cultural property is. Unfortunately, you didn't uh, tackle that into detail. Uh, you have less addressed that issue in, in your paper and during this conference. Uh, but I, I will go to the question as to whether you can include um, uh, why you have discussed intangible elements of uh, cultural property in your purpose. The examples you have given, uh, you have mentioned, uh, are all physical um, manifestation of, of, of cultural property. Uh, could a claim uh, ever be mounted against uh, the destruction of cultural heritage, property that is purely intangible? Uh, such as the belief uh, that a particular being resides um, uh, in, a, in, a, in an area? This is the first question I will ask to you before opening the floor to, you, to the audience.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I, I do, um, I'm quite aware that even in my paper that was published in the journal, I think I have also a discussion uh, the difference between cultural uh, property and, and cultural heritage. And, and the research is uh important to have the, the word cultural heritage uh, embedded in, in treaties and case law so, so that it can be as inclusive as possible with whatever makes, um, whatever makes culture, because the word culture itself so much, both the, the, the spoken, the, the tangible, the, the belief, so everything every is such a, a grand word you will and the reason why I prefer to use social property is because, um, well, you're right, the cultural the heritage has, has a more all-inclusive uh, understanding, but and also uh, what makes Everything is a belief, if you will, if we if we go into the deconstruction because I, I you know, we both um, I'm sure like well versed in philosophy, but if you go under the deconstruction of what makes something special, it is. Everything, whether it's property, and how valuable is that property, is all a function of our uh, understanding of what makes that special, what makes that valuable. How does it reflect on our world, of, of our past and, uh, and, our, and, our, and our future? So, uh, to me, it's, and, you know, obviously there is a legal definition to cultural property and cultural heritage. There's a philosophical definition to both. But to, to me, I prefer to use um, property just because I, I find the definition of property and heritage, um, like, not necessarily so as it kind of is a, a function of our morality and our, and, and our worldview of that particular property. Of, of property.
2: Okay, thank you for 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 your answer. You are absolutely right. The the World Heritage Convention actually defines cultural property to include objects of you know uh, great historical and cultural importance uh, for a particular uh, people. And the question here can be, what is an object of a great and, and, uh, historical importance uh, or cultural importance? for... For a nation, it, it it belongs to each nation actually to qualify a particular object as something which is really important to, uh, to it. I will now open the floor to, to the audience. If you have questions, you like to, yes. ask. yes, uh, I'm actually very glad that you
0: mentioned this because in the if if any of these students is interested in researching this for a class. Um, in your, uh, um, issue, the, in the second issue where my paper was published, there was a discussion about the Almaty case. And how, the, the, I read, it was an interesting article, I read it very carefully. And it basically said how uh, the Almaty uh, tense of what leads the back to Muslims in porn, um, should have been, uh, not involved, not discussing what the people themselves thought it was important, but more of a global understanding of what makes those issues important. And there was another article on the, the Almaty <laughs> case in the uh, Oxford Journal of International Criminal Law it uh, came out at the same time, and the other this does the exact opposite of saying, well, it should always be about what makes a property important to the people, and not because, not because it's a world heritage site, but because it's important to people, and therefore, when it's important to people, it should it should be a war crime, and you know, perpetrators should should have, you should pay the penalty. So I ask the students, if you have, um, if you're writing a master's degree, if you're writing a paper that you're you're looking at a topic, read those two articles and and read the ugly case itself and see how they're trying, you know, what should, or make your own decision, I guess, is what, how and when should property be um, valued on, on a global scale of what's important in, to the world heritage site, and when the value of the property matters because it's important to the locals. Uh, for example, the Timbuktu was important not only to the locals, but to the world, it was a, it's a very foreign historical site, so the UNESCO actually picked up the site. However, in Afghanistan, the, the, the statues that were destroyed by the Taliban uh, even though there's money to rebuild them, they were not rebuilt because uh, UNESCO decided that it's not important to the locals, therefore we're not going to rebuild them. So um, I'm so happy about this, uh, this particular point because it was in my mind all the whole time that I asked you to go research this question for a paper because it's such an interesting um, uh, dilemma of when you make a property deed? When when something is a war crime, when something is important to the whole world, or something is important to the locals, and you know their beliefs and their, their, their culture. Yeah.
2: yeah, Thank you. Yeah. She's, she, can just Can I
3: just the question to you or to her? I yeah, you can go you to her.
2: She's our guest today. Um. Okay. Uh, and she hear me?
3: If
1: if she can we'll repeat it.
3: Okay. <laughs> um. Well, uh, she talked about how ISIS makes millions in the black market, um, and you talked about the black market itself. My question is about the buyers in the black market, um, and how do we reach them? Because they're not just private individuals or private dealers; they're like major research institutions supported by major countries, and these are the countries that we're supposed to be turning to to protect these artifacts. They're countries within within the United States and in. Uh, and in the West, and there are supposed to be those sanctuary spaces, and yet, they have always been major players in the black market, and they contribute to it being a billion dollar industry. Um, So, you're talking about how we need to be aware of what's going on and how we need to spread awareness, but uh, if you're coming from a major research institution with all of that power, they are already aware. And so, um, basically, when we criticize ISIS for selling how do we criticize the buyers for buying and how do we make them stop doing that? Because for as long as there's demand, uh, there will always be destruction.
0: Cultural property during war or peace. A
3: well, very good question.
0: Uh, very good question. I'm glad you have that. Um, well, I, I, if you have time, um, you have, um, there was an article on the New York Times, there was an op ed, and basically it was the director of the uh, a for um, um, it was like one of the the, the big players in the market, um, uh, museum director and uh, what have you. So basically he was arguing that um, by leaving by not doing three things and leaving ISIS to destroy these particular items, are we not contributing to, to them? Basically we should have these um uh cultural public and game That's what he
3: whoops
1: just one second we're having we just cut off the audio for one second we'll be back. we'll be right back can you hear us can you hear us yes she can hear us we can't hear her yeah just. Okay, yeah. there Could you, could you, can we, can you hear us? Um, let's see. Okay.
3: okay. we'll call her, we'll
1: call you again. Call her again. Oh, she's calling us again, great. So we'll try that again. Hello. We lost video for some reason, huh? Um, we're not getting video from you, should we call her? Yes, okay, we're back, hello, um, can we hear her, no, we can't hear her. Hello. Hi. Hi, okay, we're back. Oh
0: my goodness, okay, well, I guess I cannot be outside where the countries are.
1: <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Um. It was just, it cut off just right in the middle of when you were speaking, if you, you um, just.
0: I was just it. say. so the, uh, the CEO of uh, Paul Getty Trust, I'm actually glad that we cut off the deck and researched the name. Uh, Paul Getty Trust, <laughs> he wrote an article, Mr. Um, uh, wrote an article in York Times saying that we cannot Um. We need to create uh, common museums where uh, these items are spread around the world. So if there is conflict in a particular country, then you know, these items will be shifted elsewhere, so they would always be safe. And um, you know, they, the country where the conflict is doesn't have all the possibility of protecting them. Um, and they also say they, there was also like this discussion of like the, the terrorists are keeping our world heritage uh, hostage they're making political statements with our world heritage. So a lot of these people like also for saying, well maybe we should just buy them, buy them from the terrorists so that they are not destroyed. Obviously there is major ethical questions about doing that, basically paying off the terrorists to protect uh, cultural property. So, you know, I, I'm sure people have different opinions on it, but it is a uh, highly critical and questionable ethical dilemma. Um, so, what, you, like, and it's true, like, a lot of these items eventually do make it into the, the, the they triple in legal market, and that's why this is such a huge field that nobody, uh, you know, there are a lot of discussions have been well, about partnership between um, the, the private and, and um, um, states um, to, to bring together ideas on how to coordinate um, because as you said it is a billion dollar industry when we say billions that includes all art not necessarily antiquities but i think it is a subsection of that without that billion dollar industry so the the art arts itself is billion like the the illegal art market is a billion dollar industry and so they, they are well aware of that you're right they are well aware everybody in the industry knows that there are be communities Illegally purchased, illegally traffic artifacts that will then make their way because a, you know, a, a prestigious uh, museum or a prestigious uh, house. So, what do you do? And that's why, well, you have, you know, law, you you have a uh, border protection, you have uh, education of, of the border of, of the people in the borders in the um, airports. If you fail <coughs> to cut in that might have been stolen. You have improved um, uh, prosecutions, and especially the New York office in the United States has been extremely active. Um, mostly because the person, who, uh, one of the people, uh, prosecutors that worked there also worked in uh, Iraq, and I think he has seen it firsthand and how those items have been have been stolen from the ground and then you know sold into you, um, you know major. Mis- Major houses, so um, it's difficult it, it question to answer because nobody really knows the answer, and everybody has ideas. Um, you know. Um, uh, uh, campaigns, um, improved legal uh, standards. A lot of people say, because, for example, what happens uh, when I was talking about uh, the reason why they like estimate instead of steal from museums, and not that they don't do both, but it is preferable to have items that have not been marked in, a, in, in in any database at all, is because you can say, it was in my family heritage, it is mine, I don't have the paperwork, but take my word for it. And guess what? A lot of these um, courts, especially in the United States and even elsewhere, uh, like as long as these things was like how can you prove it is not? And the burden of proof is on is on the prosecution. And in the United States like has been a lot of frustration with that, like, like and, uh, calls for changing the burden of proof to the, to make the the person who has the item prove that it is theirs. Um, again you know, difficult question to answer, uh, and everybody has their own ideas. Uh but the move- there. And I think it's also big, uh, shaming. For example, if you if you think back of um, the Jewish art stolen during the Nazis, they have been vilified to the point that it's like nobody wants to touch that because it has been so vilified that you know uh, stolen stolen uh, um, art from the, from the Jews during the, the during uh, World War II is such a shameful thing to do that people get away from it. And maybe it is uh, a way like we can. Learn learn from that and do it again now, that, you know, with items from Syria and Iraq, the a, a shame. Um, how could you, you know, how could you um, bring, bring items that have funded you know, into the uh, into the world? Yeah. But again, there is many, many um, this important and interesting dish that
4: out there about the question.
2: Okay, thank you very much. uh, Unfortunately, I have to uh, to leave before I actually. I would like to ask you whether we can actually uh, put in an embargo on the selling and the buying of of those uh, cultural property, as we have seen during a certain number of wars in Africa about an embargo on on diamond and uh, exported in, in certain raw materials, uh, do you think that, that can be an approach solution to, to the problem? problems? So, it, it seems to me that national legislation are not well equipped to to, to face these, uh, this issue of trafficking and antiquities. Um, absolutely correct. Um, I, think, I, think, I think what the
0: United States have studied is that they have actually um, put uh, on items from Iraq and Syria. There is um, absolutely no uh, legal ground other than um, if if the state itself, the legal uh, custodian of those items, asks the United States, for example, like, especially from Syria, because there is no diplomatic relations, as the United States to please take our items, and that's the only way that those items can be legally brought into the United States. So there are, there are, uh, um, uh, Bans complete
1: bans on culture property area. So we just have um, about ten minutes left. Um, so we're going to take maybe two more questions from the audience. We're going to take them together, um, and then Dr. Turku, if you can respond to both of them, that would um, be great. And then um, what we'll do is. Yeah, after the two questions, um, we'll hand out these vouchers for you to be able to get some refreshments on your way out. So, I'll we'll take two questions. Put in here, and then, yeah. I want to go ahead
4: now. Uh, Yeah, uh, can uh, Professor Tuku hear me from here? Do you want to speak up just a little bit? Because okay. we were able to
1: hear um, okay. this question. Okay, all right. Question um, the so, the, the first question that came to my
4: mind, uh, we were talking about uh, you know, selling of artifacts was, less so even reference to where the money was going, but how, how do we define the right of the buyers to actually hold a claim to owning the artifact? I thought back to uh, the, the Kayong totem pole from the Haida Nation in British Columbia that was sold in the 1850s, if I recall, to uh, Eng- to, to England. And there's uh, a debate as to whether England actually has authority to keep the artifact, or if it should be returned to uh, the First People Nation back in British Columbia. And it seems to me that even if there is a selling point of you know, these artifacts from Iraq and Syria, it seems to me the rightful ownership still doesn't belong to the buyer, even if they spend millions of dollars on this. So, do you have any idea as to how we can, uh, well, reconcile our moral and legal principles on this question and whether uh, an international court would be able to uh, to deal with this illegal conversion of items?
0: So,
1: do you, do you think we can ask the second question, um, or would you prefer to just respond to this one first? And I ask take
0: i to get my argument, okay. um, if that's okay. Right.
1: Yeah, that's fine. Um, that's a fantastic question, because there
0: is a tremendous scholarship on how do you, have, like it was never wrong to play. it was never right to, like even though these things have been purchased at some time during the colonial area, if you will. It was never right, even though it could be legal legal and, and, and morally right are not the same thing, and I think we all can agree on that. Um, similarly, for example, the, the Parthenon um, marbles, I'm sure you all know the story. Um, so they also call the Elgin marbles. If you've ever been to England, you'll see like all the Parthenon marbles are actually in England because they were legally purchased by uh, Lord um, Elgin uh, during the Turkish uh, occupation of Greece. So the occupier, the Turks, sold the items to England, and they uh, legally purchased them, and this is hundreds of years ago. And uh, to this day, the Greeks are extremely upset and demand that their, their the Parthenon uh, marbles go back to Greece because the sale, whatever the so-called legal sale, was never legal and never moral. Um, and they argue that it needs to be of the, uh, the whole, um, you know, the, the whole site needs to be together and not one piece in Greece and one piece in England. And it's a huge, huge issue, and you're right, like, uh, something legal is not necessarily moral. What has happened in uh, the trend lately um, has been that these items, for example, with, especially with the uh, United States um, and Italy, a lot of these uh, very beautiful uh, artifacts have been legally returned to Italy in the agreement that Italy will let the United States Museum, like the Getty Museum or the, the Met Museum, wherever these items are, um, have them in, as a, you know, in a period, for example, for 10 years, 15 years, or whatever, back and forth, there's an agreement where the legal, the legal ownership of the item is back to the country, in this case, Italy, right? but the country that has them, the museum that has them, um, has the right to, to show them, or, you know, they, I, I think it was on tour, basically, they go from one museum to another for a particular amount of time. So that has been the, the trend that I, I highly uh, recommend, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree that those those items should be part, because how do we even learn or care about uh, history or antiquity, if we, if we live in the United States, we live in Canada, and these things are you know, from Middle East, Africa, what we have you, and we, somewhere else. So not everybody has the means to go fly and see these things, but if you have, you know, um, tours where they come to a museum, these items have been brought to a museum so the children can go learn, and then the items go somewhere else. But the legal uh, rights to those items are to be to, to, to the owner, to the country where they came from, to the nation where they came from. Um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a happy medium because we all need to be exposed, especially children, need to be exposed to these um Culture, artifacts, and historical items, and at the same time there is no you know hard feelings about who owns them. Okay.
1: Thank you. And we'll take one final question. I believe you had a question over that. No.
4: Okay.
1: One final question. Okay. Well, um, if there are no further questions, um, we'd just like to thank uh, Dr. Turku uh, for joining us and sharing with us her expertise, Um, and we'd really like to thank um, everyone who came in today to participate in the discussion. Um, There are going to be refreshments outside. If you have your voucher, make sure that you stop by.